Welcome to Failing Forward. Diana and Aksa, can you please introduce yourselves for our audience today? Sure. Thanks, Emily. I'm Diana. I'm working on the gender justice team at CARE USA based in California. Hi, I'm Aksa Khan, and I work as the technical advisor for the global gender cohort, CARE USA. I'm based in Islamabad, Pakistan. And why is it important for us to talk about failure? I can start, and then Aksa, love your thoughts too. Um, I think it's important because it's just very honest. I think we all experience, you know, trade-offs or failures or things that don't quite go as we expect, and um, there's a lot of learning there in how we pivot and grow beyond those. Failure for me is something that prepares you to take up uh, take up things that in which you will be more successful in future. Um, it's it's not just about failing, but how do you learn from the from the failures and then you rise again? Yeah, so failure is is a lesson to do something better in future. So what's the failure you're going to be talking about today? We're here to talk about the experience of working with our curriculum on reflecting on equity, diversity, and inclusion as an organization. And, um, you know, there's a long history of this work happening within CARE over decades. Uh, and I think in the last few years, a bigger push to revisit and, um, yeah, and just really update that curriculum in line with our values and principles. Tell us a little bit more about that context and that history. Definitely. So um, the work within CARE around hosting dialogues among staff around equity and diversity is something that actually started since the 1990s. And in the last five years or so, I think there had been emerging feedback, especially among um, staff of color, about the curriculum being harmful in certain ways um, and really I think the organization and people holding the responsibilities around equity and inclusion um, taking in that feedback and working on adapting it and really really taking a hard look back at that work and that training and making adjustments to both make sure that the curriculum doesn't you know, put people on the spot to share and really put a lot of educational labor on people from more marginalized identities to um, build awareness among those from more privileged groups, as well as to really think beyond awareness to actual accountability and action. That idea of this training that, you know, the organization had invested in for decades and was really proud of having ways that it was causing. How did that come up? How did we get that feedback? And, and what are some specific examples there? It probably had been an emerging feedback informally that had happened across CARE, but I know more formally, um, specifically Black staff inside of CARE US were pointing out how the ways that some of the sessions are structured was really extractive and had the potential to be harmful. For example, you know, sessions that broke people up into different identity groups and then had them asking questions to one another in ways that felt um, like it really centered the awareness of people who maybe had never thought about issues of power, or issues of race and gender and other aspects of those power dynamics before. But, you know, for people within marginalized groups who are aware of these dynamics already, the ways the trainings were set up just didn't didn't work. 
And I think that feedback was pivotal to creating that cause for pause um, within the organization. And then in the broader context, you know, we had um, global uprisings around racial justice after the killing of George Floyd. And I think that also added that import and urgency um, for changes to happen. Talk a little bit about how we reacted to that. It's obviously a very charged moment after the killing of George Floyd. And as you say, something that had been bubbling for a while and probably had been true for a lot longer than the people who were charged with doing something about it were aware of or acting on. How did that happen? What did we do next? There was really excellent staff in equity and inclusion who were really holding that line and making sure that the feedback was heard and shared broadly within the organization. I think after that broader political moment, it did create a acknowledgement or broader need that um, that these revisions really had to happen, um, which looked like dedicating staff time. Um, so both the um, the team that is now known as Debbie or diversity, equity, belonging and inclusion, as well as the gender justice team were given the space to really um, revisit that curriculum. And I think, you know, oftentimes when there's so many things going on, things get put in a back burner as well. And so that political moment really made it very clear that this was an important area of work that really needed to happen, but also needed to change and needed to do more. One of the podcasts we had a few years ago was on where white feminism has failed and how that is the interplay in in this sector with the way some of the gender equality work has been done historically. Do you feel like that was part of this story, that that was part of how we got to a training program that wasn't serving the needs of all of our staff and was harmful to staff of particular identities? Yes, I, I think that, you know, sometimes there is a tendency and push to really boil things down um, to be the most digestible possible, but often that can really exclude certain narratives and considerations and perspectives. And so I do think that, you know, as we are really questioning white feminism more and seeing its impact on how we put a lens on our work and how we think about power and gender dynamics um, and, you know, those broader, um, more intersectional issues. Um, yeah, the gaps, I think, just become increasingly clear. And also this work really was looking to respond to that and really expand um, the ways that we talk about different forms of privileges as they intersect across gender identities expansively, as well as across like class and race and ethnicity. One of the challenges of this work has been that we do it in so many contexts, right? That this is something cares an enormous organization in a hundred countries worldwide. How do we think about contextualizing it? Because the whole idea of this training back in its original inception was to make sure we were aware of those power dynamics and we were aware of what that might mean for the work and the sector that we're in. Um, yeah, I can start and then I'd be I'd love to hear also current thinking around that from Aksa too. Um, so from my side, I think, you know, all of that is true. And I think a lot of the spaces then that we create are containers for conversations that can be adapted by context. And at the same time, working at an international NGO, um, there is a through line of coloniality that exists both in the sector as it works across so many different countries and what are the different agendas or frameworks that are being engaged and ways of working and structures that are being engaged that 
are worth questioning, you know, how white supremacy and colonization play a role um, in our work today, but also in the histories of many, many places and the ways that oppression has um, has evolved and has emerged in those histories, which are still very relevant today. And so I think that there are still important through lines that we can have conversations across contexts about, but also ensure that the ways that the conversations happen are are these containers that are shaped um, and adapted across different contexts. Is there more AXA from your perspectives on on that question, especially with like the current the current work? Yes, um, I tend to agree. Um, the the ready course it's it is adapted to different contexts. But also that it gives participants this valued opportunity to con connect with one another and at a more deeper and personal level. And they do. Um, uh, and during the sessions, uh, especially they do share their experiences uh, relevant to the context, relevant to the to the heritage where they've been winners and where there have been challenges. So um, had there not been any ready, this this uh, this would not give them an opportunity for open dialogue and sharing their experiences uh, within the different uh, contexts um, that they belong. Axel, let's talk a little bit about what Ready looks like today. What are some of the changes we've made and what are some of the things that we're excited about in the current work? If you look at it, uh, there's been um, a great response, especially at an individual level, but also that there has been commitment uh, from the offices as well. You know, the country offices to advance deeper equity and uh, inclusion within the organization, within the way of their thinking and also in their work. Uh, which is down to uh, down with the partnerships as well as at the community level. So there is like uh, you know a, a serious thinking around diversity and inclusion and the and the importance of it. So and and country offices they are supporting uh, the trainings that are being offered, uh, whether it's it's in person or whether it's uh, it's virtual. Uh, and also there've been some uh, feedback around immediate. Um, results is that country offices now are more inclusive in their strategies uh, in terms of understanding the needs uh, of different people you know belonging to uh, different back ethnic backgrounds different um, uh, race or economic status so within um, the country offices it has been uh, reported that it's it's more of a commitment to an inclusive agenda You've mentioned inclusivity, Aksa and Diana, you talked about intersectionality. When I very first took the training that was the predecessor to Ready, and I was very young and it was many years ago now at CARE, it was primarily focused on gender with a little bit of focus on race and then lots of conversations about power. How have we had to shift to think more about intersectionality? I think a lot of the work that we have built on, um, I know Aksa mentioned heritages, um, it is really grounded in story sharing and also building on people's experiences, which are complicated and nuanced and really layered as well. So I think that level of reflection is really the starting point rather than pre-assigning like you know, first we're going to talk about gender and then, you know, here's like a little bit about race. We also try to make space for thinking about power across all of those areas 
as well as the ways that they interact with each other um, and really shape people's specific conditions and experiences. And I think, you know, we had a lot to learn. I wanted to make sure that we named some of the sources because it was a really great opportunity to start looking at how others are really holding these conversations in ways that um, create space for that complications or that, you know, more nuanced conversations. And I think organizations like Aorta and there's an educator named Fo who have really created strong frameworks for thinking about some of these questions, as well as another curriculum called We Don't Want to Be Stars, um, which really started to create both thinking through also these aspects of identity and experiences across our lineages over time, looking back into our histories, but also into, you know, visioning for the future and what is the future that we are trying to pave the way for um, as like future ancestors as well. Yeah, also there's, um, you know, a, a commitment to adapt the gender training and some of the country offices have also incorporated the ready to uh, topics in, in their trainings at the country office level as well as um, external uh, with external partners as well. So overall, um, there uh, because of this commitment, um, there is that contribution towards uh, positive change uh, within the country offices and especially, you know, to uh, to have these bold conversations around power dynamics and how it impacts um, uh, and also to understand that, you know, uh, intersectionality does uh, impact and influence uh, the gender. So it's not just about looking at at the social roles and responsibilities, but when actually working with individuals and community to realize that, uh, um, that you know, um, gender is influenced by intersectional factors of uh, race, um, uh, socio socioeconomic status, and ethnic background. And sometimes uh, these factors are really deeply uh, entrenched and and can also result in uh, in the marginalization of the communities that we work with if we do not um, consider these facts. Mm -hmm. And just one last thought on this question is I think, you know, a lot of this work then is really grounded in a strong analysis and understanding of of local like one's own context, but also thinking about like legacies of oppression and just how how socially constructed a lot of our advantages and disadvantages are right by society and I think the other aspect that we did aim to make space and give voice to is really disability as well and also understanding how disability is itself socially constructed in terms of what society deems and accommodates in terms of different um, yeah in terms of really just defining what disability is or isn't. I know for me when I did it and certainly as I've had other conversations with people who've gone through the training and again, especially coming in with this lens of white feminism, there's this moment when it's, oh, as a woman, that doesn't mean that I am always the person who is powered down. I have a lot of identities. Many of them carry enormous privilege with them. And unpacking that is really part of the work of this training. We all carry more than one identity. And as people who work in an industry that, as you say, Diana, is rooted in a history of coloniality, that's something that staff really have to take on. And it's challenging to have that conversation and to have those realizations. What is the most important or the most helpful part in getting us there? Because that's something I think we all need to do. 
Um, one session that we added um, that actually comes out of some of the work of groups like the Bay Area Transformative Justice um, Collective and others working on community accountability is a session or lab related to um, what does it look like to take accountability and just like I think really normalize just like this podcast is normalizing failure it, it is also normalizing yeah, you know, sometimes we do make mistakes that are hurtful or harmful to other people or to work and what we are trying to do. So what what next, I think, and really taking taking that opportunity and space for people to work on, you know, owning <laughs> things that have happened that um, that were hurtful and also making concrete changes to grow from it. And I think sometimes that discomfort around one's own privilege or like you know how people are interacting in spaces can stop work and progress from happening so part of the things that we do in this training is make space for for workshopping like making apologies and moving forward and trying to change behaviors but also normalizing that that is something that happens and that's just part of being a person in a community um, I also in in some of the countries, it seems that were colonized. The colonization legacy is is quite uh, strongly entrenched, you know, in many of the institutions like uh, the judiciary, executive. Um, so it it does require that. I mean, even like participants, are they even ready to have that uh, that kind of bold uh, discussion? Um, and also, like uh, it, it's really covered so well uh, within the ready topics workplace culture. So that does start a bit of uh, um, reflection, you know, on what kind of culture do we have? Is it a colonized mindset that we bring into our workplaces, and and how do we begin to see that? And how do we begin to have a conversation around that? And how does it impact um, um, different people within different country offices and and the and different contexts? So I would say that at least um, it's the first step to realize and start a conversation around these uh, bold isms. If you could do it all over again, knowing what you know now, what would you change? I can say that um, one request that has been uh, coming to us frequently is that when when we have these ready trainings and we do there's a session on action planning, is that it should be a, continue, a continuation of reflection, not just um, you know uh, within the participants who attend those trainings, but also at the country office level. Um, and that is something that that you know they're looking at cohort like to have discussions with the management um, around uh, these issues um, issues when we talk about you know what progress and impact uh, Ready has made at the country office level. So this is something that, you know, the request has come in. Yeah. And on my side, I think as a curriculum that has been used so widely across care, I know in the initial round of revisions, we had a whole process of putting together this like committee to review any changes and, and approve them um, that was representative across different geographies um, and offices of care. Um, I think I would have done more work to like socialize that process so that everyone was aware that that's what was happening, but also make space longer term and define how that kind of decision making um, 
body or representative group could then also support ongoing revisions since you know we are also getting revisions on hey like I think this session would be great to add into the curriculum and I think you know it's not meant to be a static resource and so finding a clear way of what that looks like to bring in feedback and then adjust and continue to adjust in a way that feels connected and owned across such a large federation is important. So Oxa, tell us a little bit about the Ready Training Now. What are you most excited about? One of the things you've mentioned is the importance of investing in staff growth, but I'd love to hear more of your reflections just about where we are today. Uh, well, Emily, we've, um, uh, we, uh, we are streamlining and uh, and the cohort is committed to conduct these trainings um, uh, every month because there's so much demand and request for that. And then also, uh, Emily, we are expanding on the on the pool of facilitators, like you know, in different regions. So the the ready training of facilitators facilitators is an opportunity, and uh, participants are really excited about taking this on, so that they can carry the message uh, widely. You know, not only in their country offices level but also uh, like you know providing support to other regions to other country offices for example that there was a need uh, for a male facilitator and that was uh, the ready training that was organized in in care netherlands so we had uh, one of our ready uh, uh, facilitators flown in from um, haiti to uh, to netherlands to conduct the training so there's um, you know there's a lot of um, uh, cross-country participation, um, plus also that it does um, uh, provide um, a space where people can come together and they can they can reflect on these issues and talk openly about it. So uh, and they're realizing the value of it and uh, yeah. So there's been a significant increase in demand and also uh, it's it gives um, it's really pleasing to hear that most of the co colleagues say, share that it's it really is uh, an eye-opener and it's broadening their uh, horizons. Going back to the whole logic of, of a training like this and one that goes across the whole organization, this is a huge investment, both of experts like you, of partnerships and learning from other organizations, of staff time, of that incredible network of facilitators we have who are based all over the world. Why is it so critical for us to be making this investment? Well, because um, I think READY is, uh, um, the Ready initiatives align strongly with, uh, with uh, Vision 2030, and it's it it does resonate with our commitment to social justice, um, as well as also uh, like you know um, at least initiating um, a conversation around um, anti-racism, and also like again looking at the intersectional factors that do influence uh, gender equality. And above all is looking at the different power dynamics uh, within uh, within the agency uh, relationship and structure. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think you said it well. What's one action you'd recommend to other people, either people inside of care or people in the broader community? What's one action you'd recommend based on what you've learned so far? Um, from my experience, I think, you know, it's for me, the one action is ensuring when these conversations are happening that it connects to a commitment, a commitment from leadership on holding organizations and holding teams to a set of values or principles related to equity and inclusion. And so really making sure it's not just 
a nice space um, for for building just awareness and then ending there. And it's also not just listening to the to their voice. They're voicing their uh, their concerns around um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, but to even understand. Uh, that where do these concerns uh, come from, and and you know how best to uh, uh, to take initiatives in terms of you know bringing about um, a reality and an improvement in the real sense when we talk about uh, diversity and and inclusion, and also like you know in uh, uh, being excluded is is something that creates an Im- impediment to. Um, to teams growth uh, personally as well as uh, professionally so I would say that you know understanding ready is uh, and also when we roll it out is to take uh, whatever the participants they share their concerns or they propose any actions that are required I think we need to commit around that and take and take those seriously is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience today that I haven't given you a chance to talk about yet well, I think also um, uh, it's important, um, you know, not just uh, for for the for the managers or the middle management. Um, I would like uh, um, sometimes we do find the the senior management uh, missing from these trainings, so it's important for them also to to be part of it. Okay, they are committed to send uh, their their country office teams, but I think it's also important that. Uh, uh, that they also understand the spirit of uh, ready so that you know when when participants go back um, they are able to understand and participate in uh, uh, in the conversations on on ready i think that's that's quite important absolutely i was thinking a similar lines in terms of just i know earlier it was mentioned that it, it has been a big investment um, in some ways yes and then at the same time i could also imagine you know, ways that we structure it so that it is more of an organizational commitment across offices, um, which could really streamline how we are able to organize these sessions um, to reach across all offices, and that that is part of the budget and part of the ways of operating. So some of those pieces around senior leadership engagement, it's not just for staff, this is for everybody, it has to be an organizational commitment putting money and budget behind it, right? These are things that it's great to have a curriculum, but if you're not actually doing it and you're not actually resourcing it, um, then it's a great curriculum and that could be where it ends. And those ideas of accountability that you talked about, both personal accountability, you know, Diana, you talked about that learning how to apologize, learning how to be accountable when you've done something wrong as an individual who was part of the training, but also organizational accountability to this kind of a commitment. Anything else you would add there? That sums it up. That's great. Thank you. (laughs) If you had to say in one sentence what your key learning has been, what would it be? I think for me, it would be change only happens when you're willing and committed to do the work. Yeah. And also it um, reignites the level of empowerment. And to understand that empowerment has to be sustained continuously. So ready is, uh, is a very strong contributing factor to that. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. It's been really a pleasure to learn from you. And thank you also for making sure you lift up who else has inspired us and what other organizations have really contributed and where we've learned. It's so important to remember that we don't do this alone. Absolutely. Thank you, Emily, for hosting us. Thank you, Emily.